Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast that checks in every week with the people at the centre of the debates about where Canadian policy should be headed, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. We speak with the thinkers, doers and deciders about how good policy can make for a better Canada. We'll be putting out a new episode every Thursday, so please join us weekly if you're up for a deep dive into the policy choices in front of us and the trade-offs involved. And tell your friends they can subscribe wherever they normally get their podcasts. You can listen to back episodes of Policy Speaking and learn more about the Public Policy Forum and our research projects at ppforum.ca or on the Twitter handle ppforumca. Here's the host of Policy Speaking, Edward Greenspawn, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of the Globe and Mail. Welcome back to Policy Speaking. Canada has a trickier road to navigate than most countries when it comes to climate change policies and the transition underway in the energy sector. For one thing, we are an energy producing country. In fact, oil is our largest export category. Without oil, our trade and investment deficit with the rest of the world, and yes, we have had one for 11 straight years, deficit for 11 years would more than double. At the same time, the hundreds of thousands of jobs associated with oil and gas production and development are concentrated in four petroleum producing provinces. And Canada is a federation, so governments need to work these things out together surrounded by a very rational insecurity on the part of a lot of people. That said, Canada is also a signatory of the Paris Agreement and Canadians, especially younger ones, are rightly concerned about the worsening effects of climate change. Even more than that, Canadians take their international obligations seriously. We're a country that sent more than our share of soldiers to fight in two world wars. And now on top of that, we have a new incoming president of the United States committed to taking action on climate change. That means Canada will, depending on how you look at it, either have a continental partner on energy and environment policy, or should we fail to walk the talk, have a powerful protagonist pushing us to get on with the program. I prefer to see this as an opportunity. And even though we've continued to fall short of our goals, there are plenty of pathways to reduce emissions from better retrofitting of buildings to incentives for electric cars, to higher carbon taxes, to investments in innovation and technology possibly even a future hydrogen-powered economy. Today, we want to talk about one of those solutions, the capture of carbon before and sometimes after it can be released into the atmosphere and its storage, usually back in the underground aquifers from where fossil fuels originated, or its usage in new lightweight materials for, say, electric cars. This capture of oil emissions is obviously important for the oil and gas industry, but also for cement and steel makers, refiners, aluminum smelters, for all heavy industries. Expect to hear more about it from governments over the coming months. Now, today we're going to talk about carbon capture and storage, CCS for short, with two of the authors of an intriguing new paper on the subject by the Boston Consulting Group. I like the paper so much, I cited it in an op-ed I wrote last week with my colleague Dale Eisler, proposing a cross-border Canada-US initiative on carbon capture what we call the keystone of carbon, one that could complement the keystone of oil. So I am delighted to be joined for this policy speaking conversation today by two of the Boston Consulting Group authors of that recent paper, which is called Think Small to Unlock Carbon Capture's Big Potential. Alana Hosius 
joined BCG and the Center for Canada's Future in 2018. The Centre aims to convene leaders from the business, government and nonprofit sectors to work together to achieve impact. In her role, Alana leads the Centre's thought leadership on topics such as climate change, sustainable finance and diversity, equity and inclusion in the workforce. Alex Dewar is the Senior Director of BCG Centre for Energy Impact based in Washington, D.C. Prior to joining the CEI team, Alex spent seven years with BCG's energy practice as a principal in both Washington and London. He has advised clients around the world on oil and gas, power generation and transmission, and renewable energy topics. Well, thank you both for being with us today. Thanks, Ed. It's great Thanks, to Ed. be here. Alana, I thought we need to think big, but the paper says think small. So perhaps you can walk us through that. Sure. So I think that one of the core takeaways from the paper is the notion that small clusters of industrial emitters putting carbon capture in place amongst those, those hubs or clusters of emitters is a sort of critical tool to bringing down the cost of carbon capture by sort of sharing the transportation and, and storage infrastructure necessary to kind of bring carbon capture to life. So if you build a network, you get, uh, I guess, what in technology people call network effects here. Just to build on that exactly, I, I think in discussions about CCUS, it's long been hypothesized that there would be significant scale and network effects from it. But it's largely been a theoretical discussion, uh, you know, a hot topic for economists and, and uh, you know, policy and think tank circles and all of that. Um, what we really set out to do is really do a comprehensive asset by asset modeling of CCUS economics. And we deployed BCG's digital capabilities and geoanalytical capabilities to optimize the design of different networks and clusters of emission sources um, to link those emitting sources with transport options and ultimately storage options for the CO2. And what we found actually is, is uh, as has been hypothesized, right, significant scale and network effects, so much so uh, that it really can take, you know, tens of, of dollars, even upwards of $100 a ton off of the ultimate cost of CCUS if you optimize the network and, and design a network really to bring emission sources in in the right order, in the right concentration, and to link those to, to the best transport and storage options. We're working with clients already to deploy those insights and help them think about the role of CCUS among their assets and in their portfolios. Okay, so I guess that makes sense. If you have a scale of three or four or five or whatever the right number of emitters are sharing storage and sharing the transportation, obviously that would bring the unit cost for everybody down. And the amounts you're talking about, tens of dollars, hundreds of dollars, uh, or a hundred dollars, you didn't say hundreds, you said a hundred, is how material is that amount? It's quite significant, really, because if you think about where CCUS is today, uh, one of the main challenges has been that uh, even projects that are in the range of 50 to $100 per ton of CO2 captured, that that's still too costly relative to where many governments have set their policies in terms of carbon taxation, tradable permit markets, or other climate-based policies. So anything that can help to bring those costs down to get CCUS in the range that current policies can enable projects to take off is really a big contributor. And for us, 
of, of course, the technology development, everything happening on the implementation of carbon capture uh, is, is critical, but also the transport and storage effects, uh, the lowering the cost there through these network effects is a really critical enabler to bring the cost down to make CCUS really competitive as an option for decarbonization. Okay, Elena, in Canada, there is a network, I guess. Uh, it's, it's a very uh, new thing called the Alberta Carbon Trunk Line. Very evocative name. Uh, tell us how that works and if that's a demonstration of what you're talking about here. Yeah, I think it's, it's exactly that. I think the Alberta Carbon Trunk Line is, is really one of the first examples of sort of an industrial carbon capture hub that has kind of come, come online in, in the last year. And it's exactly the kind of thing we're talking about. So we've got a couple emitters currently a part of the network. And by sharing the infrastructure, we believe they are able to, to bring overall costs down. And then that carbon is transported for use in enhanced oil recovery. And I think one of the, the really great things about ACTL and something that was sort of certainly covered in, in our paper as well is the opportunity to add emitters over time and to expand the hub. So one of the findings we had in the paper was that, you know, there's sometimes an optimal, num optimal number of emitters at the outset that sort of hit the optimal or lowest cost possible for all players. But by establishing this kind of shared infrastructure, you can then open it up to additional players over time. And the ACTL has done that as well. So currently with the two industrial players in place, it's set to capture, I believe, about 1.6 megatons of carbon a year, but has the ability to expand to actually capture up to 14.6 over time as more industrial players join the hub. Okay, 14.6, I think they say is about 20% of the emissions from the oil sands. So that's a significant contribution from this project. For sure. But it's a very expensive project, right? Yeah, I mean, the costs are definitely, you know, still coming down the curve. There, there's no question about that. But I think it's important to view the technology as sort of an investment and not just a sort of key lever to bring the cost down over time and, and enable the, the technology to become commercially viable, but also an investment in long-term competitiveness in Canada in, in sort of a future industry that can be so much bigger than sort of how we think about it today. And so it, it certainly is expensive. That's why there's often a lot of discussion about government investment in R&D, government incentives to enable a more competitive investment environment. But, but certainly costs have come down. We saw that in the case of the application of carbon capture in coal-fired power plants. When you look at the evolution of the cost from Boundary Dam to Petronova, just sort of where studies kind of see the cost today, it's almost a two-thirds drop. So I think certainly expensive, but, but coming down and, and an investment that's important to, to make the technology commercially viable over time. So Alex, do you see, you know, we've seen costs come down so dramatically in wind, in solar, even in battery storage, which I don't think has reached its potential yet, but, you know, costs have still come down. Or, or do you see the same kind of trend line happening with carbon capture and storage? Well, I think it's a lot earlier in CCUS. Uh, just to put it in perspective, there are about 40 million tons of capture capacity globally, CCUS capture capacity. That's taken about 40 years to develop. And of that, 
only about 5 million tons are in applications that are very low concentration flue gas. So, you know, we're talking power generation, other combustion sources, which is really where the big opportunity for CCUS is as a lever to decarbonize going forward, taking very low concentration combustion type emissions and capturing the CO2 from that. So we're much earlier on in the process here of scaling up CCUS than other technologies. And to put that in in context, to meet a two degree pathway, the world would need about 100 to 150 times that current capacity of CCUS. So, you know, it's really small relative to where it needs to be. What we've seen are promising data points. As Alana mentioned, costs are coming down in the few truly industrial world scale projects that we've seen. We've already witnessed a lot of innovation. And as new technology is coming to market as well, the prospects for much lower carbon capture costs. So whereas we were talking $100 a ton for Boundary Dam, Petronova has lowered that capture cost to about $70. I think there's a pathway towards uh, CCUS in low concentration applications like power generation or steel, other combustion type applications that are below $50 a ton. Yeah, let's just tell people where, where some of these are. So Boundary Dam is southern Saskatchewan. It's one of the first, I think, major TCS projects, is it? And you mentioned Petronova, which has a much lower cost. How many years difference was between the two of those, and where is it? Uh, yeah, so Petronova was just uh, really completed in the last two years here in the U.S., and Boundary Dam, you're, you're, you're pressing my knowledge exactly here. I think it was started before 20, 2010 or so. Um, so a little bit, you know, not quite a decade in between them, but really miles apart in terms of the innovation and the learning that occurred there. And, you know, really an implementation of the same type of technology, but in much more cost competitive ways in terms of the sourcing of different components, the supply chain that was developed around it, and frankly, just the technological learnings, you know, what didn't work, right? It takes doing it wrong a time or two before you learn your lessons and, and can apply it going forward. So I think we've seen a lot of those lessons already embedded in, in Petronova. There's discussion, you know, uh, in, in the U.S. now about whether that was truly successful because um, unfortunately the plant is shut down this spring, and that's due to the fact that the offtake of the CO2 was for enhanced oil recovery, which was no longer economically viable with a lower oil price. I think that speaks to the challenges of getting the commercial model right. But from an engineering and technical perspective, the, the broad consensus is Petronova has been very successful. Right. Okay. So, Alana, tell us a little bit about, in order for all of this to work, what does industry need to do? What does government need to do? What is the relationship between the both? We've seen in the in, in Britain a few weeks ago an announcement of two kind of networks like Alberta Carbon Trunk Lines themselves that uh, are to be constructed and are meant to have a large effect on emissions from industrial power plants and you know all of this is to be buried back in uh, aquifers under the North Sea. But I take it there's a whole policy regimen there. So what do governments and industry need to make this happen anywhere, including Canada, of course? Yeah, I mean, I think an ecosystem approach is, is really important. This is one of those sort of large capital investments that it's really sort of challenging for a single player to kind of build the end-to-end solution we're talking about. And And government has such a critical role to play in kind of bringing all the players together. And, and like you said, establishing that 
policy framework uh, that really kind of allows the different industry players to understand kind of the direction of policy and be able to make investment decisions accordingly. I think in terms of what government can do, there's a really broad range of of ideas out there and policies taking place. Um, certainly on one end of the spectrum is significant government investment and loans for R&D. Historically in Canada, we've seen that kind of government investment in early stage R&D in the oil sands industry, in, in other industries to sort of help bring technologies to scale. But then there's also sort of significant investment in just sort of standing up the infrastructure. And so in Norway, in the sort of flagship longship project, which is requiring about 2.7 billion US in, in investment, the government there is investing about 1.8 billion of that. So that's sort of much more significant in scale than what we've seen to date in Canada. And sort of similarly to the, to the plan you just mentioned in the UK, I think as part of their 10 point industrial or sort of green industrial revolution plan, they've earmarked about up to a billion pounds for sort of those exact clusters you mentioned, those industrial clusters off the eastern coast. And so I think there's there's sort of a lot to be done on that side of the spectrum. And then a clear role for government to play kind of on the other side, which is really about incentivizing the investment from private sector players versus doing the investment itself. And so that can be something like the 45Q tax credit, which we've seen in the United States um, to sort of um, incentivize investment in the technology and then provide a tax credit or, or rebate for um, emissions captured and stored or emissions used for enhanced oil recovery. And I think recently the International Center for carbon capture knowledge out in Saskatchewan, they came out with their own report that sort of put forward a couple other ideas for, for tax credits that the government could put forward that sort of focus more on the early stage. So uh, tax credits for the upfront capital investment, tax credits around the expenditures for sort of the engineering studies and the design studies that, that need to be done up front to kind of enable that significant investment at the beginning. So I think there's, there's really a broad range of policies that, that governments can pursue. But what I think is really clear and what we've seen across the board is that there is a very significant role for government to play here. And that by sort of putting that stake in the ground, it creates the sort of enabling environment for the massive private capital that's needed to, to follow. Okay, so you mentioned one of the examples, the 45Q tax credit in the United States, which was supported in, in a bipartisan way in order to promote you know, this kind of activity, carbon capture storage activity. There's a lot of talk about you know, that Canada should, might match that. But there's also a lot of suspicion, I guess, you know, that this is just a way to you know, perpetuate fossil fuels in a way. What, what do you make of that argument, Alana? Sure. So I think what's really important, and to me, one of the, the key Canadian findings that came out of the, the model and the analysis that we did is that this solution, carbon capture as a tool for emissions abatement, really goes beyond the oil and gas industry and, and the, foil, the fossil fuel industry as a whole. It really kind of applies across the board in Canadian heavy industry and is in some cases, the really the only viable abatement lever for a lot of our industries like iron and steel and cement, it's, it's really not just oil and gas. So a number of the clusters that we looked at and found to be 
under $100 a ton for carbon, those clusters were out in Ontario. It wasn't just concentrated in Alberta, in Saskatchewan. And so I think it's really important to see this as an opportunity, as an abatement lever for all of Canadian industry, and not just as a, as a tool to sort of improve carbon competitiveness now and achieve our carbon targets now, but really a long-term investment in, in our competitiveness and in future industries. I think, you know, direct air capture, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, those are only likely to grow, you know, and those aren't tied directly to the oil and gas industry. Hydrogen, which is often talked about as a, as a key tool out west or blue hydrogen specifically, that will rely on carbon capture. And so I think certainly it is an important abatement tool for the fossil fuel industry, but it's, it's much, much bigger than that. And I think sort of critical for us here in Canada to think about it like that. And I think you've calculated that something, what, like half of the gap, Canada has this huge gap between now and, and 2030, the commitments we've made for 2030. It's a, it's a gap of approximately 80 megatons of, of emissions, a huge number. But are you calculating something like about half of this could be Realized? Yeah, exactly. So I think when we looked at the sort of top hubs in Canada, the three largest in terms of emissions with the sort of carbon capture hub fully in place, there's two out in Alberta and one in Ontario. With those in place, we could capture somewhere in the range of 40 to 45 megatons of carbon a year, which, like you said, is just over half of our current gap uh, to, to achieving our Paris target. So we think that is sort of one of the, the most exciting findings that, that came out in terms of the, the Canadian data. A couple other highlights, but that was certainly one of them. Okay, Alex, you're down in Washington. I only say down because I'm in Toronto. And before I get to the Biden administration, which I want to talk about what they might do, you know, this tax credit that Alana's referred to, this 45Q tax credit and the activity around carbon capture in the United States has been moving ahead under President Trump's administration as well. And as we know, you know, he's pulled out of the Paris Agreement. I don't think climate change has been his number one concern, certainly. So what's been going on in the States that it has taken this interest in carbon capture? Yeah, I think carbon capture is one of the admittedly limited areas of actual bipartisan alignment in the US. I think from the, the climate perspective, activists and, and those concerned, you know, fundamentally about uh, the, the existential challenge of climate change, increasingly recognize that CCUS will play, must play a critical role in getting to two degrees or well below two degrees. All of the modeling effectively shows that it's going to be imperative to scale up CCUS in order to, to decarbonize cost effectively. It's one of the few technologies that can really make an impact on uh, heavy industry emissions in a scaled and, and cost-effective way, right? On the other hand, uh, I think you have those that are more concerned about the future viability of uh, the oil and gas industry, of the coal industry, and they recognize that CCUS is also one of the only levers available that uh, really under a more aggressive set of climate targets and policy can enable the continued use of hydrocarbons. So based on that, we have seen that alignment. And I think in the U.S., it's resulted in 
uh, support for tax incentives. You know, we're we're not as fond of public infrastructure projects in some ways as yeah, as European countries or, or others around the world. We do more of our policymaking here in the U.S. through market-based mechanisms and particularly through the tax code. So just so happens, you know, that turns out to be the way that policymaking on CCUS has been done recently with 45Q. But, you know, beyond that, there's a longer track record here in the U.S. of research uh, development uh, and demonstration projects and public support, federal government support for that as well. So I, I think the politics here are quite conducive to it. And, you know, 45Q is the latest step in, in I'd say, a longer history of support and interest in CCUS. But Alex, how do you explain to people, I'm going to ask you a similar question that I asked Alana a couple of moments ago, you know, there are a lot of people who are suspicious about carbon capture. Some of them think it's too expensive, others aren't convinced it's effective. But I think particularly there's a lot who think it allows large emitters, particularly in the uh, oil and gas industry, somehow or another, off the hook. It's a way for them to get off the hook. What do you say to those arguments? Yeah, well, I think it's really a question of in what way do we want to decarbonize, right? The, the, the planet must decarbonize one way or another. We can either do it in a more ordered, controlled, planned way, or uh, if we don't, right, deal with the, the economic catastrophe and, and fallout of, of catastrophic climate change. But, you know, if we're going to approach it in, in an ordered, managed way with a clear strategy, you know, I, I and many others would postulate that trying to do it in ways that minimize the cost while preserving uh, and, and maximizing social and economic welfare and benefit is probably a good set of principles to design principles to apply. And here, you know, we know relative to other options for decarbonizing heavy industry, CCUS is competitive. So while, while it's costly today, relative to where carbon prices are and relative to renewables and electrification, it is cost competitive versus many of the other options we have to decarbonize heavy industry. And also, uh, you know, as Alana mentioned, it's a mechanism of technology to preserve many of the jobs and economic activity around hydrocarbon-based economies today. And so at least through a transition and, you know, referencing the, the whole logic around a just transition, CCUS is a means to enable, you know, continue sustaining employment and economic activity while we, we transition to lower carbon future. Right. And I think the International Energy Agency has made quite clear that I think most of their scenarios show there's no route to a controlling the plus two degrees future without CCUS as part of, uh, as part of that mix, right? That's right. And beyond the IEA, uh, you know, the IPCC has commissioned and, and, and worked with uh, a multitude of different studies um, produced all around the world. And, and they've pretty much all come to the similar conclusion, at least directionally, right? The, the exact scale of CCUS and the role of different technologies varies, but there is very broad consensus uh, that, that some form of CCUS is needed in a very, in a very material way. And I, I certainly recommend the, the 1.5 degree report from a couple of years ago. It had some excellent modeling in that and, and, and very clear on that front as well. Right. Lana, I'm going to ask you both about the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration. I think we now are safely can say that it will be incoming on January 20th. I'll ask you from an American perspective, Alex, and I'll ask you, Alana, from a Canadian perspective. I'll start with you, Alana. Uh, what 
pressures or opportunities do you see flowing for Canada from an administration for which climate change will be a major priority? Yeah, I think there's there's certainly a lot of opportunities, as you described at the outset. It can certainly be sort of a key area for cooperation. Uh, we've we've certainly seen significant commitments uh, towards climate here at home in Canada, and we certainly see sort of very similar commitments echoed by the incoming administration. And so, you know, it's it's very easy to see how there could be some common ground there and and room for collaboration. And I think carbon capture is certainly well suited to be one of those opportunities. I think we already see cross-border cooperation on that already between the United States and Canada. Since 2000, we've been transporting carbon from North Dakota into Saskatchewan via pipeline for use in enhanced oil recovery. So we already have a record of cross-border movement of carbon. We already have a record of it. We we see other countries looking at similar kinds of, of projects elsewhere in the world. So it's certainly not, you know, a, a, a too out there an idea to think that this could be a real opportunity for cooperation. And in the model, a number of the hubs that we identified in eastern Canada where we aren't storage abundant in Canada like we are in western Canada would would rely on um, storage in the United States, in New York State, in Pennsylvania, Ohio, to, to be viable. And so certainly you could easily see a lot of cooperation, not just on carbon capture, but more broadly. But I think, like you said, there's certainly also the possibility of, of headwinds as well. I think that the Biden administration has, you know, made some um, upfront statements around uh, its plans with the Keystone Pipeline. And so I think there is a certain amount of uncertainty at play in terms of kind of whether this will be a more um, an area for cooperation or, or challenges. But I think um, certainly carbon capture, I think, looks like one of those, those opportunities that we really could, could capitalize on. Hey, well, let's come back to that opportunity in one second again, vis-a-vis -vis what you're talking about storage in Pennsylvania and, and places uh, south of the Canadian industrial belt. Let's come back there in one second. But Alex, why don't you um, tell me from your Washington perch, what you expect to see different coming from a Biden administration that is germane to the kinds of conversations we're having here? Uh, well, I think in a word, everything <laughs> um, in, in terms of a transition from from the Trump administration here, right, where basic climate science was was denied and, you know, every effort was was taken to thwart not just domestic activity on climate, but frankly, international collaboration. Uh, on climate and many other issues. I think what, what's going to be you know, really interesting to, to watch January 20th and beyond is uh, how the Biden administration really elevates climate change in practice to one of its four top priorities, uh, right? During the campaign, President-elect Biden spoke regularly about how climate change uh, was one of the interconnected four crises facing the U.S., and uh, it sort of set a pathway forward of making policy that reflects that intersectional nature of, of, of climate change. So I think seeing how it's linked to economic recovery from COVID, to infrastructure, as well as to environmental and climate justice are very exciting things to watch, right? It's, it's going well beyond what was done in the Obama administration. And, and I think look to, to a very high level of ambition on, on climate change. Um, certainly, you know, some of it will run into headwinds in Congress, 
with a split or very close, at least the, the division in, in, in Congress going forward. Uh, but there are many things that the administration can do directly on this. And, and uh, I think this aspect of cross-border collaboration is, is one. And CCUS is one of those, those technologies that really does speak to that intersectional nature of climate change, right? Touching on economic stimulus and growth, as well as long-term competitiveness, linked to infrastructure, linked to domestic production, and to a just transition and ensuring that there is a fair transition and, and one that benefits uh, you know, everybody, right? Including those that, that are working and see their economic livelihood tied to uh, hydrocarbons. Yeah, Alana, one, one of the fascinating parts of the report to me is to see, you know, you guys have mapped out where sites are with the greatest potential in the world for this network of collection and this common storage. And maybe you could just walk us through a couple of the great potentials in Canada, maybe starting in Western Canada, and then we'll uh, move into Central Canada. Sure. So I think there are sort of two ways to think about high potential, or certainly two ways I think about it when I look at the data. There's the business case, and so that's a matter of kind of looking at the hubs we identified and thinking about which are the lowest cost, um, and kind of, kind of going back to the overarching thesis of the paper, this idea that by kind of focusing on these hubs where there are lowest cost um, opportunities, you can kind of bring that the overall cost down and, and the technology to scale over time. And so I think we see sort of two of those really low cost hubs um, averaging around $50, $60 a ton um, out west. So that would be there's, there's sort of one we identified in the low cost range in Alberta and one in Saskatchewan um, focused largely around petroleum refining in, in both um, provinces. And then there's the sort of other side for high potential hubs, which really looks at the kind of amount of carbon that you can capture. So sort of much more from the kind of climate impact than necessarily the business case. And there- uh, I, I just want to interject for one second and say 50 to $60 a ton is, you know, soon the carbon price in Canada is going to be close to that amount. So it's not hard to make the leap and invest in that, given where policy is going. I mean, that's pretty inexpensive, relatively speaking. Right? Yes, exactly. Relatively speaking, it it really is low cost, um, especially compared to kind of the range of costs that are out there. And I think for even some of the, the bigger hubs that we found, I think kind of across the board, we identified let's say about kind of 14 or so hubs within Canada. And amongst those eight are sort of come in the price range of under $100. So again, as you kind of think about the overarching direction of policy over time and the potential for these technologies to come down, a starting point at around $100 a ton, $90 a ton, et cetera, is kind of in the grand scheme of things, not that high though, though admittedly still an expensive option. Um, and then I would say in terms of the, the other high potential hubs that I would highlight, I think it comes down, like I mentioned, to the climate impact and the amount of emissions you can capture. And so the three sort of big hubs, the ones I mentioned at the outset that could capture and kind of close almost half of our gap to Paris, there's sort of two in Alberta concentrated largely around the oil sands industry. So think about sort of where Fort McMurray is and kind of where the Cold Lake oil sands are as well. So kind of that whole region, you could kind of picture two hubs there. And then out in Ontario, 
think about sort of across the southern Great Lakes, the kind of industrial regions, they're focused around iron and steel, as well as sort of some refining, some cement and lime. Again, sort of a real potential for a cluster there. And all three of those kind of coming in in the 90 to $100 range. Yeah, on that, on that last one, I mean, that's Dale and I touched upon this in our op-ed last week. And, you know, you've got, what, a couple of major steelmaking plants around Hamilton. You have a major cement facility in uh, St. Mary's, Ontario, which is near Stratford, Ontario, in southern Ontario. I think you have a huge refining complex in there, too. So all of that could be collected fairly efficiently. But as you said earlier it would have to, or one would want to ship it south because the better storage is not in Ontario. And I take it that's for geological reasons. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So we're, we're abundant in the right kind of geological storage out west, but um, unfortunately not so much in Eastern Canada. With Pennsylvania, Ohio, that area where hydrocarbons have been taken out of, those provide uh, efficient storage. Yes, that's what the, the model identified as really sort of the nearest potential storage and, and those regions being sort of identified as, as abundant as well. Okay, so that's something we could cooperate on as countries. And, and I guess there's some talk, Alex, about in the Biden manifesto for the election, uh, there was talk about something called carbon border adjustments, which is a a way of making sure that you're not operating your country at a disadvantage to other countries that don't take the same kinds of precautions. The Europeans seem very, well, I wouldn't say very advanced, but they're advancing in this discussion. If we had cross-border cooperation, I guess that would be a way of avoiding protectionism here. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. You know, the world is just starting to to get to know the term carbon border adjustment mechanism. It's been around in policy circles for some time, but the European Union taking the lead on laying out a roadmap to implement one by the uh, 2023 or, or so when they're targeting it uh, was, is the first really major step toward that. In the U.S., we're much more you know nascent on it. Uh, you're right; it's it's been laid out um, you know by the Biden campaign, by uh, uh, congressional Democrats as well. Um, but I, I think it's it's really an important concept because it's one not just to to stop what's called carbon leakage, right, in terms of implementing, if a nation is to implement a set of policies to minimize emissions, you know, they don't just want production of carbon intensive or carbon intensive activity to go over the border somewhere else that doesn't have that, right? It's meant to stop that leakage. But also it can be a mechanism to help find the most efficient ways to reduce emissions. At the end of the day, right, taking more modest steps in a country that's producing and, and exporting to, to an importing country uh, is, is going to be more cost effective than taking you know, that, at that extra mile right, to reduce uh, uh, emissions at $100 plus a ton um, in, in Europe or another, another location. So uh, I, I think it's, it's uh, certainly an interesting policy mechanism and one that business is starting to, to catch on to and, and find opportunities for comparative advantage in. Um, not just being the lowest cost producer, but the lowest carbon producer. So let's end on, on this uh, question for both of you, uh, maybe starting with Lana. 
you know, Canada, the United States, one of the things that has tied us together, I guess, ever since Norman Wells was developed during the Second World War to provide um, oil and gas to the war effort and to the U.S. military, uh, particularly in Alaska. But, you know, certainly part of the 1989 Free Trade Agreement, too, was a continental energy approach. And we would, you know, move our energy back and forth, move our electricity back and forth, we move our gas back and forth, oil, oil as well, uh, more from Canada, the United States. But, uh, but there's these connections and the networks of connections. So to what extent do you see the same kind of approach duplicated in a world of carbon removal? Yeah, I think it's, I think that's exactly the way that the way to think about it. Um, I think that we've seen over the years a lot of cooperation on these kinds of projects on major infrastructure projects kind of across the border. And so I think as we think about kind of the overarching direction the world is headed in and we think about, you know, what is the world going to look like 2030, 2040, where where will there be border carbon adjustments? Where will there be a higher carbon tax in place? And what does this mean for industry in North America? I think it's it's really important to kind of add that part of carbon to the mix, that sort of piece of the energy picture and think about how do we cooperate on it? How do we move it across the border to get it to the best available geological storage site and sort of create utilities the same way you move electricity across the border. If you think about you know, what direct air capture could look like in 2050, I often picture, you know, the equivalent of a solar farm somewhere that is then transporting um, carbon. And direct so, air capture is taking carbon right out of the air, sucking it right out of the air. Exactly, right? exactly. And so I think, you know, how can we kind of come up with ways to, to optimize those kinds of potential future utilities to then move the carbon across the border the same way we, we do, like you said, with electricity. So I think a, a huge opportunity for, for cooperation and really important as we just think about future North American competitiveness around the world for, for carbon to be a part of how we, we think about our economies. Alex, you want to add anything to that as we're uh, wrapping up? Oh, just, I mean, just to build on, on what Alana said, um, you know, the, the fundamental purpose for, for trade, right, is, is different nations will have comparative advantage in, in different uh, goods and services. And I think with CCUS, it's a matter of both the emission sources and the cost of capture there and the geological storage. And not every location is equally endowed with the same geological storage. So there's a natural nature there for, or, or basis for, for comparative advantage and therefore trade. And, and I think we, we in, in our modeling and others have identified that opportunity between the US and Canada. Um, and, and then that can form the basis, I think of, of in, you know, international cooperation building on our, our long history of doing so. Well, that's great. I guess next time uh, we come back, I talked mostly about CCS, carbon capture storage, and you've added the U in there, which is utilization. And uh, there's a lot of potential in utilization as well, using the carbon to create lightweight materials and other, other sorts of products that would not be combusted, but would actually uh, add to detract from the amount of carbon actually that goes into uh, the atmosphere, replacing other materials that might be more intensive. So we'll save that one for another day because I think we've covered a lot of ground today. And I want to thank you both. This is a complex, but, you know, hugely important subject. And, you know, your report creates a lot of insight and hope for the possibility of, of you know, bringing the cost down, making it economical and getting you know, rid of a good share of those emissions. So congratulations on that to both of you. 
and thank you for joining us today. Great. Thanks, Thanks so for much, having Anne. us. Okay, that was great. Now I've got, as we move to the end of the podcast, the weekly policy speaking trivia challenge for our listeners. We've asked history teacher J.D.M. Stewart, author of the 2018 book, Being Prime Minister, to distract us with something obscure in these days of everything being so monumental. You can respond on our PPF Twitter or Instagram accounts, and we will give a verbal pat on the back during our next episode to some of the quickest to post the correct answer. Indeed, before we jump in, I just want to share that next week will be the final episode of season two, and you'll have the chance, those of you who answer this question correctly, to get your hands on a copy of Being Prime Minister by J.D.M. Stewart. So make sure you check back to find out how. But first, last week's question, we reminded you that after a four-year hiatus, not only does a Democrat return to the White House, but a pooch, matter of fact, two are coming back to the White House when Joe Biden moves in with his two German shepherds, Champ and Major. And I've actually read this week that a cat might be moving in too, which might tell us something about Biden's penchant for working across the aisle. So now the question we asked last week was, it's been a while since the prime minister has had a dog in 24 Sussex Drive. In fact, you have to go all the way back to the Brian Mulroney years. He had two dogs. Last week, we asked you what were their names, and being our listeners' best friends as we are, we gave you a hint. They were standard poodles, and the names had Irish connections. And the answer, which many of you got, were Oscar and Clover. So this week's question, this Sunday is the 99th anniversary of Agnes McPhail's election to the House of Commons. She was the first woman to win a seat. On her first day in the House, something was placed on her House of Commons desk, a result of a lost bet. What was placed there on that day in 1922 when she finally took her seat in Ottawa? And finally, at the end of our podcast, we'd like to take a moment to salute some of the above and beyond the call of duty efforts being made by PPF members and partners. This week, we want to say we are PPF proud of our members, Fisheries and Oceans Canada, for the creation of their Canada Nature Fund for Aquatic Species at Risk. This funding will support 49 multi-year projects across Canada, some of which are already underway. The idea is to build a culture of conservation and revitalization where the fund will take an ecosystem approach to restoring and protecting aquatic species. We are, as I say, PPF proud of Fisheries and Oceans Canada for helping recover habitats for species at risk across Canada, and we are grateful to them as an active member of the Public Policy Forum. So that is a wrap on this edition of our podcast. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know on Twitter at ppforumca and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Edward Greenspawn and this has been Policy Speaking.